I am Jeff, lead pastor of Northview Community Church in Abbotsford, British Columbia. And this podcast is where I get a chance to interview people about things that I'm interested in and talk about whatever I want to talk about. Welcome back to another pre-conversation conversation. My name is Levi. I'm the producer of the show here to sit down with Jeff and talk about some stuff he has promised to have opinions about. Mm-hmm. So many opinions. That's very good. Here they come. Ready? Fast and Furious. Well, we're just going to talk about two things okay. for a matter of minutes. You don't really tell me much about this before we do it. That's what I find interesting about this. You tell me, hey, we're going to talk about this subject and that subject. I'm like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, either a good thing or a bad thing. I usually know a little bit about the subjects, but it's really a sign that I have stupid opinions about nearly everything. Well, whether it's good or bad is none of what I'm about to say is the view of Northview Community Church or the Mennonite Brush Conference or or me necessarily. (laughs) Okay, go ahead. Significant in the world of archaeology and biblical studies, there's been a new discovery of some more Dead Sea Scroll fragments recently. Can you? Tell us a bit about what the Dead Sea Scrolls are, why they're important, what they mean for us in the present. There was a community called the, the Qumran community that, uh, ve- like, very, very, very old um, community, that Jewish community that, that lived up in the, or hid the, these scrolls up in caves near the Dead Seas, and we have found them in the last 60 years or whatever. I think the earliest ones were in the late 40s, I think. Um, but what's interesting about them is that the, you know, they've book the book of Isaiah's on them or, or another, you know, some old Testament. And now the new ones, I think you said that are, uh, some new Testament, uh, manuscripts. So they'd be in Greek and the old Testament Hebrew. And what they find, what we find is that the, the Hebrew book of Isaiah that's on the Dead Sea Scrolls matches up really well with the manuscripts that we already have which means that we, it gives us greater confidence that the texts of the scriptures that we have are consistent and true. And there's a process called textual criticism, and the question really is, okay, so in Greek, uh, which I'm, I'm better acquainted with, um, but say in Greek, you'll have uh, the way that they, they did it, they have copy machines or anything, and so, you know, the original would be passed around to different churches, and in order for the churches to, you know, pass it on to other churches, they wanted to keep a copy, so they had to make a copy, and sometimes they'd make like eight copies. So the copyists, you know what it's like, you copy something and some, by hand, and you make might make a little mistake here or there with the phrasing, or, you know, your eyes just run into the next the next line, and you record that, and it's just a, we, we, we call it typo, right? So a lot, of, there are a lot of typos in, in these, and then they had things called scriptoriums, where you, you, you know, the guy in the front would read the Greek and everybody else would write it down, and some Greek letters sound the same. Is it an omicron, aw, or a, an omega, oh? So, you know, how, how do you, what, what exactly is the word? And so you have these different, um, these different manuscripts that come out from different regions, and some of the regions have similarities, called the Western textile, Byzantine, and, um, and I, Anyway, that's way too much information for most people, but the point is that we come at our our New Testament that we have today by uh, a process called textual criticism, where we we narrow down based upon a, a several rules, like what we what we think the actual original was, and so if we find old manuscripts that have something saying not only similar but almost identical to what we have. We're like, oh, we did it, <laughs> you know, like the, the this is great. And it gives us greater confidence in scripture. That was more than you needed to know. But I like knowing it. Do you like knowing it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Textual criticism actually was one of my favorite classes in seminary because it was like playing a detective in the ancient world. It was a lot of fun. You had to figure out, okay, what happened? Why is this version different than this other version? And then you come up with like, oh, actually it looks like the copyists, you know, just wrote, it said, this, this word sounds like this other word, and this other word was earlier in the past, you see? So it's kind of fun to figure it out. Hmm. So so what is to stop me when I, I read an article like this, and I think, what if they found a whole new book that seemed like it was written at the same time as the New Testament letters? It seems 
like it was written by somebody pretty reputable, what is it that stops me from making the leap from that discovery into saying we should consider adding this to the Bible that we have? Yeah, you need to, I mean, the early church had a really uh, a narrow <laughs> hole through which they, they allowed the books that, that we have to go through. So they were really critical of them because a lot of people were writing in the name of Paul or writing in the name of Peter. So even a number of years ago, I think they found the gospel of Judas or something, which was dated back to the second century or something to that effect. And, you know, some of the doctrine of it was all wonky and weird, and it showed more in similarity with the Gnostic gospels than it does the, the Orthodox um, stuff we have in the Bible. So I would say the presence of lots of fakes should give you pause mm -hmm. and the recognition that there are all these fakes around there and the early church's, you know, um, stringent criteria should make you realize that uh, we should have a significant amount of doubt about what those, what those books are saying. You know, Paul has, this is the question historically has come up with this, like they're, they're, the Corinthian letters... We have 1 Corinthians and we have 3 Corinthians, but we don't have 2 Corinthians. I know that sounds weird. Our 2 Corinthians is actually 3 Corinthians. There is a sternly worded letter that Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians that's actually probably the second letter he wrote. So what if we found that, right? That sternly worded letter. That was That's always been the question. If you found that, is that, you know... Should we add it to the to the to the canon? And I, I I don't think so. We have everything we need in this in the scriptures now. That's helpful. Is it? I again, boy. I like to hear this stuff. Good. I don't know if I'm our average listener, given that I tend to care about this stuff a lot. Levi, there's nothing about you that's average. That's what everybody keeps telling me, and they never say what they mean by that. Okay. So that's always comforting. Sharp transition. I think, well, no, I can link it. Okay. That was a popular opinion that I think you just voiced, that the scriptures matter and that we shouldn't add things to them willy-nilly. Would you say that's a, yes, a popular, that's a popular opinion. opinion? I have an unpopular oh, opinion. Oh, love that. Which Good we'll transition. Get into. Well, yeah. we'll get into these from time to time. Uh, today, I had one that Jeff thought I was dead wrong about, at least in one instance. Uh, I'm going to voice it, and I want to hear your thoughts. My unpopular opinion is that with basically any sauce that you use with the exceptions being ketchup and barbecue sauce, the addition of that sauce makes the food itself that you put the sauce on taste worse. No, this is wrong. Listen, I'm willing to go with you on mustard because <laughs> mu I don't have any idea mm -hmm. why mustard is a thing that people like. It makes no sense to me. But mayonnaise on a sandwich is, makes the sandwich a little more bearable. Are we going to call butter a sauce? No. What if I melt it? Oh, the, you're just making stuff up now. And also, what about cheese whiz? Because cheese no, 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 no. whiz makes everything better, doesn't it? <laughs> I uh, strongly disagree with well, that one. come on. If you drizzle, that's why people sometimes try to convince me that broccoli's great. Because they're like, what if I drizzled a little cheese whiz on it? I'm like, well, I, You actually. can make the same argument about tree bark then, I think. <laughs> Doesn't mean the tree bark's good. It's just like a spoon. Really? How come you have that opinion? That's dumb. Bar just, it's just because you have bar barbecue sauce and ketchup are things that you dig. Yeah. I have a friend whose daughter puts ketchup on everything. By everything, I mean everything. Like you have to give, when she, she's eating, you give her the food, and then you give her a, the ketchup bottle. That's what she, whatever it is. And she'll say, well, I'll eat it as long as I can put ketchup on it. See? So she, she's with you. Let me tell you, though, if you, if you go to Subway and you get pesto and Caesar dressing on a sandwich, you're welcome. I just blew your mind. Just, hey, listen, you don't need to write in and let me know how I changed your life right there, but I did. I think we'll agree to disagree on that one because I'm still convinced that I'm correct. That was our pre-conversation conversation. We're moving into a, an interview that Jeff did with Jacob. He used to be an intern at our church. They cover a lot of ground about Jacob's story, some things about racial issues. Uh, we trust you'll benefit from that conversation. Hi there. This is Jeff, and I'm with uh, Jake. 
Jacob, sorry, Gabriel, but we just had a conversation before we came on that Jacob can be called Jake because uh, I, that's how I know him and have known him for a while. He was actually an intern at Northview a while ago, but now he has gone and flown the coop and done great things. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. I'm, I'm doing all right things, honestly, at this rate. I, uh, there's a lot of things I miss about working in the church and all that sort of stuff, but I love being in the marketplace too. Yeah, you're, you're not working in the church now, but you, still, you are still a missionary. Yeah, God's people sent everywhere we go, right? That's absolutely right. So listen, most people who are listening to this don't know a lot about you, so I would like you to tell them about, about you. Where are you from? Uh, how did you come to faith in Christ? Uh, what are you doing now? That kind of stuff. Yeah. How did, so, how did you end up there? You might need to tell people too that you hate college, but we'll get into that in a minute. <laughs> oh man, I, I love your how amped you get about that topic. Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm the kid of two Ethiopian refugees. I always say if someone wants to know me, they should probably know four things about me. Uh, first is I'm the kid of, of, of two Ethiopian refugees. Don't tell anyone that'll listen. Uh, that gave me my grinder, you know, workhorse sort of spirit. Um, I secondly. Uh, so, kid of Ethiopian refugees. Second is that I was raised a spoken word poet, so a lot of love for language and the beauty of words uh, to move and uh, impact people. Uh, third, I was raised a debater as well, so I had the chance to uh, get scouted and compete uh, internationally doing that. Uh, and debate is, uh, I think, a large part of me case building, orator, that sort of type. And finally, I want to one day elder in the local church. Um, if there are lots of unknowns uh, in, in life. Probably the thing I sense the most clearly uh, one day is that the Lord would have me elder in the local church, uh, Lord willing, of course. But yeah, you, you put all those things together, uh, you probably have a decent idea of me. Right now I work in sales, so I'm an account executive at a startup in Vancouver called Clue. We're a tech company that helps businesses research their competitors. And I run an organization or help run an organization called Sales for the Culture that helps uh, get black people into uh, the tech sales profession and helps them flourish once they're there. So that's kind of all the pieces of me in a nutshell. Wow, that's really great. Uh, like super, super concise summary. I love it. Like, you, no wonder you're a debater. You've got to do the time. By the way, when you did debate, were you a debater where they have to talk super, super fast or was your more qualitative than that? You know what I'm talking about? Like debaters yeah, sometimes are like, oh, that's super American. Uh, I can feel your American roots coming out, Jeff. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think the way that so there's kind of two main tracks. I always I always say there's the American track of debating and then there's everyone else. So there's <laughs> the right one, the right one and the wrong one. Yep. Got yeah, it. Well, I mean, I was going to say that, but um, there's. A kind of an international circuit and the high school and at the university level. So uh, I didn't do a whole bunch of university debating for reasons I'm sure we're going to get into later, yeah. but I did a little bit of it. Um, and then in the high school circuit, I had a chance to help uh, help coach uh, the Canadian national team, just one of the supports there and help judge at the, the world championships. So in that style, I think we talk faster than average, but not as fast as Americans. Right. So uh, I want to investigate each one of the things that you said about yourself a little bit, uh, if that's okay. Sure. Um, I, <laughs> that well, that's why we're, let's do it. No, that's why you're here, because so that we can talk about all of those things. You are one of the most interesting. But you ever seen those uh, commercials? The most interesting man in the world. That's you. Because no, I, you have so many. Yes, you are. You're I have biblical reasons to reject that. Okay, fine. But I still think you're really interesting. Um, so here's the thing. Uh, I want to know a little bit about, uh, I want to ask you a question about argumentation in our culture, right? So let's deal with the debate thing first. You, when you say you're a trained debater, that means most debaters deal with what informal logic. What is that? What, what is informal logic? What is like, what, what do you learn in debate? Give me a, a one minute debate class. Go. If you're in the sort of debate that I would do, uh, which is either world schools debating or Canadian uh, national debating format, just a few different styles, the, the core of what you're trying to do is you have a judge, you have an opponent, you're assigned a topic, and you're assigned the side. So, I mean, you could be debating everything from uh, arms sales uh, of the West to Saudi Arabia being good or bad. Uh, you could be debating, you know, environmental policy of conserving, you know, endangered species. You could be debating all sorts of things. Um, and you don't get to choose what 
side you're on necessarily. You just got to find the best argument for the side that you're representing. And really, you got to identify a problem. You got to show how your side best deals with the most compelling problem and why the impacts of what it is that you're going to accomplish on your side are more important than the other teams. At the end of the day, you do that more effectively than your opponent uh, in the eyes of the judge, you win the debate. What is more effectively? Like what, what, um, what are you trying to, I get it. So it's not so much about your particular viewpoint. It's about your approach to defending or advocating your viewpoint. What, what, what kinds of stuff do you, do you do to advocate for your viewpoint? Like what kinds of things count? Yeah, it's a good question. So part of the fun of this is part of a debate, a part of the debate is debating about what should merit someone to win in the debate, right? <laughs> it's not just that you're having an argument that you're bringing forward with some otherwise defined criteria. Generally in a debate, right, the motion and the side you're assigned are probably going to imply that you've got certain things you need to defend, but you've got a little bit of ability to set the turf for yourself. And really what you want to do is prove that you have conceptualized what's most important with respect to the topic and that at the core of what we should be valuing most as a society, whatever principles you want to lay out, make a decent case for why that is the case, why either the status quo or what the other teams bring to the table violates that in such a way that it just makes more sense, right? It's you're, you're justified in principle, you're beneficial in outcomes, you're effective in getting to the results that you say you're going to get to throughout your argumentation. If you're more justified, effective, and, and beneficial than the other team, generally, of course, it can vary from debate to debate, but if you can accomplish those things, uh, you're probably going to end up winning. Do you think that the reasoning that, I'm like, what has debate taught you that the reasoning that you see in the public square is good, bad, what? Well, first thing um, I always say people it, to people about being a debater is you have to go through communication rehab after you've done debate if you expect to talk to real people in the real world. <laughs> For a few reasons. One, uh, in, in debate, you there are some things that are assumed, right? It's assumed that your judge is someone who, you know, is relatively re well read. You're not gonna have to debate like basic like facts about the world with them. Um, those things relatively uh, can be assumed. You're also assuming that the judge is following you logically, right? That if you if you say something clearly and A leads to B leads to C, then your judge should generally buy that argument unless the other team breaks it. <laughs> um, you assume that saying, you know, de de demeaning the character of the person that you're speaking uh, against uh, is not necessarily a path to victory, right? So there's just some assumptions there that when you get out into the real world, they don't necessarily hold up. Um, and I think probably the no, because that seems to be the path that most people take. I mean, that the ad hominem, the, the attack on a person's character. Like, dude, have you seen Twitter? Do you know what Twitter uh, is? Yeah, I'm, I'm mildly familiar, Jeff. But you know what my favorite like, Seriously, isn't that what Twitter my, is? It's just like, I hate you. Favorite because, though, because you I will say, Jeff, my favorite difference to consider between a debate and honestly, like what I do in sales, right? I got a rude awakening. Because um, obviously in sales, like you have a product or a service, you're hoping for the other person to understand. Um, obviously, if you are actually able to help them, that's the big asterisk on the conversation. Like what you do is actually helpful for them. You're hoping to show them that uh, in a way that they would want to buy what you have. I remember when I first started in sales, I treated it like a debate. And I went, this is why <laughs> this is like the best thing for you to buy, A, B, C, like Let's go. <laughs> and, exactly. I win. And people would not buy from me. And I was floored. I'm like, I am objectively correct here. <laughs> what are you, what, what's the issue? And the, the challenge was in a debate, the person that you're disagreeing with and the person who's evaluating the merits of that disagreement are different people. Your opponent and your judge are not the same person. And for the rest of your life, pretty much, not on all situations, but pretty much, the person that you're disagreeing with and the person who's deciding how the disagreement went is the same person. <laughs> right. And so when, when they are the same person, um, how you come across uh, is often as important or more important than the logic that you use. Yeah. Yeah. In so many ways. And I found whether it's in evangelism or in obviously my day job in sales or just in my day-to-day -day relationships with people um, when I'm so focused on being right. And unfortunately, I feel like this is 
come across a lot in um, the communication styles of a lot of Christians that I know, uh, and particularly the ones that swim in our sort of theological circles, like we're, we're systematized and we, we, we know our Bible and those sorts of pieces, like we like to be right in the eyes of God and right in our thinking and all that sort of stuff, which aren't inherently bad things, but but in the way that we can communicate sometimes in our in our subculture of, of our bubble of the Christian world, um, we can forget um, to win the heart over just winning the argument. And um, that often leads to maybe not the most uh, productive conversations with people. So that's probably my favorite difference to consider between debating and the rest of life. Right. Uh, and with your wife, I'm sure that you use the truth-oriented approach and not the winsome well, one. Because that, that's the way it works, I you mean, know. Marriage advice for you. You just got married. Yeah, we got married you six can... months ago. Um, I, if we make it to the one-year mark, it will be because I didn't follow that advice. <laughs> <laughs> if you win the argument, that your wife will really appreciate it. I, uh, my wife is normally uh, right on most things uh, if we're disagreeing. So it just takes me some time to realize. But uh, and I don't just say that uh, out of my rear. I, I really do mean it. She's She's got a pretty good head on her shoulders. Totally. So, <laughs> so listen, you... you uh, you are the son of Ethiopian refugees. So why why were your parents refugees? It's a good question. Uh, my dad was once upon a time a Marxist, Leninist, like real hardcore rebel against uh, a pretty heavy-handed Ethiopian government. Um, so when I, I have friends who uh, love considering you know Marxism and or communism and socialism and all this sort of stuff, and I'm like. I don't know if you know people that really were about that life, but but I do, my dad. Uh, and things got a bit heated in Ethiopia at a certain point. Um, eventually, um, he was in the Air Force uh, and decided that he couldn't really stay there. Um, left, was led through uh, a wild story that I hope will be a Netflix special one day. Um, he's led by, you know, some guides through the forest to try to get, or through the desert to try to get to Djibouti. And uh, the guides, he didn't realize, were Somalian. And for those of you that aren't really uh, well acquainted with uh, East African uh, geopolitics and whatnot, but uh, at that time, Ethiopia and Somalia were in the heat of, of war, right? So the fact that it was like, oh, wow, these guys in the Air Force, like these are the guys killing our brothers back home. Like, we're taking them to Djibouti. <laughs> they walk them up to a point, they go over, they take all their stuff, all my dad's friends' stuff, and go over those hills there. At Djibouti, they get over the hills and they're at Somalia, met at gunpoint. Um, bear the dog tags, eventually get, you know, they, they don't get found out for being Air Force people, but they do get thrown in prison in Somalia anyways. My dad event proceeds to talk his way out of Somalian prison. Uh, gets uh, Thankfully, uh, Amnesty International and the Canadian government um, and a Mennonite church in, in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan uh, helped uh, get him out and get uh, him uh, and his friends started in, in Saskatoon. So that's kind of the context with which my dad left Ethiopia and came to Canada. My mom, that's, more of a direct route. Uh, so they they were in uh, Saskatoon. Is that what you Yeah, Saskatoon. It, yeah. So were you born in Saskatoon? Is that what I was born in Burnaby. So um, my brother was born in Calgary. I was born in Burnaby. Uh, I was raised in the Tri-Cities. So Tri-City Church, uh, is, which is at Northview. Right. Uh, are we still a campus of y'all? Or are we, we, did we roll off yet? Uh, not yet. No, okay. no, we're not going to let you go until you fulfill certain requirements. Well, I, we are that that change all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I am basically i I am the Bonnie Henry of the church. That's world. so great. The bar right. ever raises. The bar ever raises. Yeah, no, it's good. Two week, two weeks from now, you'll be off. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Well, my uh, my my context with so my parents raised, but they they were fleeing a pretty pretty terrible government situation uh, back in Ethiopia. Um, raised us here in BC. I was brought to an Ethiopian Orthodox church maybe once a week or sorry once a month sorry uh, maybe twice a month until I was about eleven. Only problem is I don't speak a lick of Amharic. So I could have been at a Bolivian church. I could have been at a Hungarian church. I knew nothing that was going on. Bible was not read to me in my home. Could not tell you any more about Christianity than anyone growing up in a post-Christian society. Um, but I got to high school and people said, oh, if you're a Christian, colonialism, residential schools, LGBT community, please explain. 
to which I did not have a good explanation, to which I said, I'm spiritual, I'm not quite religious. And that's kind of where I rode up until I got to know Jesus at 19. Yeah, that's great. Um, I, I want to know, though, uh, so, you know, I'm from the States, and so uh, if I ask an African-American person, they're going to have probably a little bit different context than mm-hmm. you because you grew up in Canada. Mm-hmm. But is my assumption about a, you, you being a black man growing up in Canada, is that, am I wrong about that? Like, like your experience is way different than, you know, an African-American man who grows up in, I don't know, Los Angeles or something like that. Or what is your, I mean, kind of asking you, what your, what's your experience growing up in Canada as a, as a black man? It's a great question. Um, and for a couple of reasons. One, I was raised by Ethiopian refugees, immigrants. Like the, I was raised much more to be cognizant of my Ethiopianness by my parents than my blackness. My, my dad was like, yeah, you're black, just so you know, in case you weren't aware. But uh, my mom was a bit more like, wouldn't even want me to hang out with other black kids. In fact, one of the things in Burnaby where there's a, where I was at the time, there's a decent black population um, where I was born, but my parents moved us out to the Tri-Cities because they didn't want us getting um, in the mix with a bunch of other black kids in the area that were either getting up into trouble or treated a certain way that would lead them to. So it was it was really interesting growing up for me. I, I, so thinking of myself as a black person, I would definitely say it's not as intense as racism can be in the United States. But I think a lot of Canadians then give us a pass and go, oh, so it's not that bad. It's like, I don't, <laughs> that's not what I said. <laughs> um, but, you know, you, you're, you're shaped so much about by how the world interacts with you. So whether or not my parents taught me to think of myself as black um, in a lot of ways growing up, the people who I encountered at school would go, what's Ethiopian? Like, you're black. (laughs) And you're a nerdy black kid. Like, we don't really have a box for that yet. You know what I mean? Obama didn't step on scene until I was 13, and that changed a lot of the way that people perceived me. But um, I had a really hard time growing up because I didn't fit into this Americanized mold of what pop culture would say a black person is. Um, and I kind of got both the tough ends of the stick. I didn't get the, maybe the benefits of, of being a black kid growing up that, you know, positive, uh, things that can come from that. Um, and I didn't also, uh, have an experience spared of different treatment from being a black person. I'm sure the next question is, well, what was that different treatment like? Uh, but was there anything you wanted to jump in on before? I? No, that's, that is my next question. What is the difference? What's the different? <laughs> Um, I think a couple of parts, right? So I can broadly, you know, characterize being black in Canada and like where the differences in outcomes would be, right? Child and youth development. I mean, whether that's educational outcomes being worse measurably consistently for black people in Canada than non-black people and particularly white people. Um, that's a, a commonly uh, documented phenomenon, but I'll, I'll boil this down to like my lived experience, right? I almost got sent to a correctional school growing up. Now, keep in mind, uh, I ended up getting a full-ride scholarship to business school um, twice over. Like, I'm relatively academically all right, (laughs) but I got, I was inches from being funneled down that school-to-prison pipeline we hear so much about um, with my dad regularly, like week after week, having to sit in front of my teacher, pod team leader of teachers, vice principal, counselor, all basically like ripping into my dad being like, your son is a problem kid. When really I was, I was just an excitable guy with a lot of questions. Um, and beyond that, I mean, I would get these weird questions from my teachers that kind of assumed that my dad wasn't around when there was no data to support that whatsoever. (laughs) Um, and it was just, it was a, a different sort of experience than I knew the other kids I went to school with grew up with. Um, and so it, it, the fact that whether it's assumptions about a child's home life or escalating quicker with a certain sort of kid than you might with one that you can maybe relate a little bit more to, I, I, I don't, I can't read too much into intentions, but um, I can tell you that as someone who was very much slated, like on a specific plan set up to then go to a correctional school growing up, like it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. (laughs) And I guess that's one way that I've experienced with that. Like we've talked about like systematic bias in education. Like I've I've definitely experienced that Um, and had other teachers, ironically in middle school, like I had a middle school teacher that this was especially bad with and another middle school teacher that I had him and I caught up after I graduated high school. 
And I was talking to him about this stuff and he was so heartbroken to hear about this and heartbroken that he didn't intervene further knowing how disproportionately I was being treated, but not really having a full insight back then. Um, so yeah, that's just, I guess, one example. Do we want to keep going? <laughs> no, that's great. No, that's great. I, I am really interested given your, your perspective and I mean, you're, you're a really capable thinker. So I am really interested in, in your take on some of the recent race relations stuff, the discussions and things like that. It seems like even Christian gets involved in the Christian church a lot. Mm. Like, what would you, what would you tell a Christian about race relations and their part to play in it? Is, is there something that you would say to them, whether they're white, black, whatever, would you tell them, look, this is what you need to understand. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a big fan of trying to break things back down to first principles, right? Um, Jesus, what's the most important law of them all? Well, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And seconds like it, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Uh, a lot of people um, like to, you know, stray from... Uh, I wouldn't say stray. They, they don't want to get caught up in like this social gospel and all these other things that they, they feel like are circulating around um, in, in modern Christian culture. But they, they want to stick with the first principle stuff, you know, a person of the word, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not getting lost in, you know, the, the whole Marxist thing. Um, I'm going I'm to love the Lord God my, all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and love my neighbor as myself. And there's only, I, I guess, one issue with that. Um, Jesus is quoting specific verses there. Right, he's he's quoting from Deuteronomy with the Shema, talking about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I think a lot of people know that, but I don't know if a lot of people consider where Jesus is quoting from with that second commandment. That's like it: love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and I don't want to steal your thunder if, if you no, you do. You talked a lot about this uh, before. Like, is this something that Northview preached through <laughs> at all? Or? No, no. And this is actually a, an issue that I think. Most people at, my, at Northview and in the Fraser Valley in general and Christianity and stuff, like it's, it is a distant, you know, we kind of, we, we watch a little bit from the distance on it, on the sidelines, and we just watch the fights going on in the States and other, you know, other people who are highly involved in it. And we just wonder what, well, like, I don't understand what's going on and why can't they just get along and what, what is, how should I think or feel about this sort of stuff? And so they end up getting their, their, their viewpoint mostly from conservative uh, political voices. Not that that's necessarily wrong, but it is certainly one-sided in terms of, you know, the way that it's, they portray some of that sort of stuff. And so it's, I'm really interested to hear, you know, your, your take on it. And you're right. That is a quote. Where's it from? Yeah. Leviticus 19. Um, gotta love me some Leviticus. Uh, if someone hasn't had the chance to go through this section, like there's one spot in the whole Torah that uses the specific wording of love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is dropping into a very particular um, passage. And, and, and that passage, um, Moses laying out for, for the Israelites uh, a, a whole bunch of laws. But, but in this section, he's really leaning in on uh, laws as they relate to justice um, and loving practically those who are, um, whether we want to talk about power, enfranchisement, or whatever terms someone wants to put here. I don't want to jargonize it and, and get like boxed off to the side. Um, but those who don't necessarily have um, all the same uh, power uh, as as maybe you or me. Um, and he's talking about the sojourner, the foreigner, the poor, the disabled. He's talking about um, those who are not like you in a lot of ways, those who might have systems. He's talking about one part specifically about the legal system that one has uh, or a nation has. Um, well, it's interesting, too. I mean, just not to cut you off yeah. too much, but the the – you know, the Good Samaritan is is like the lived out, ex, you know, the example mm. that Jesus uses. Yeah. And it's interesting that it's, you know, it's these racially, I mean, they're close racially, Jews and Samaritans. But, you know, sometimes the closest racial uh, folks have the most animus between them. And, and it is, it is very much the other. So he actually tells a story. Oh, yeah, you know, those people over there that you hate or they you think that they hate you or whatever. That's what I'm talking yeah. about. Those are the neighbors. And I, I would not do justice to preaching this whole uh, passage. Ligon Duncan has a phenomenal sermon on this. They did a Get for the Gospel Conference, uh, if, if one's interested, um, in diving into that text, getting unpacked further, uh, particularly in this context. But uh, what I'm, I'd zoom out to 
Um, what do Christians need to think about? I think we have a quick reflex, maybe because media in a lot of ways um, has put the gun on, on Christians in some ways of, of looking for every moment that maybe we've done something wrong or not right or not as right as it could have been. And and at times we feel a little bit like, you know, we've got to stand, stand up for ourselves here. <laughs> and um, I don't know if we realize it, but there's a, there's a very clear sifting that the Lord's doing in us, I think right now, of our desires to be constantly in the right and perceived as in the right when we're talking about these matters of justice. And in two parts, on one hand, it's, um, are we really doing, practicing righteousness? Are we loving mercy, doing justice and walking humbly with our God? Are we, you know, looking out for the other and, and those that don't have all that we have? That's one piece of it. But the other piece of it is, even if we do those things faithfully, that doesn't necessarily guarantee that we're going to be praised for it, <laughs> um, you know, right away or at all. And I, I think that, I don't know, there's something about Christian culture having been in, like enfranchised as in power for so long in, in, in contemporary Western society that like ripping that away from us. We we don't like being called out or, or seen as perceived as in the wrong, whether it's because we're actually doing the wrong things or whether it's because we're we're not getting the praise or pats on the back that we used to. And, and we just got to we got to we got to shake that. And there are serious consequences of us not doing so spiritually and then also for our ability to actually participate in loving mercy, doing justice and walking humbly with our God and culture. Right. Jake, am I wrong? And so here, here's here's my a little bit of a, a take. Um. It's, it seems to me that in the race relations discussion that's that's live right now in the Christian church, it seems to me that there is a there's a, a great number of uh, African American or uh, black people who are Christians who are saying this is this is our experience. Yeah, this is the way it feels to be both not in a just a white culture but in a in a white. Uh, not governed, but like highly influenced white church setting. Sure. Yeah. And this is our kind of, we all have a similar take on it. And, and yet there seems to be a big pushback from, oh, it doesn't matter if it's white or, or whatever, but there seems to be a big pushback from that white run church saying, Hey, wait, no, no, uh, you're, you're kind of wrong. Is that, am I wrong in the way I take my take there? Cause I, I don't think so. As a Christian white leader, I think to myself, well, gosh, if, if, you know, this massive bulk of brothers and sisters in Christ in whom the spirit is active are all saying, hey, we should probably think about this. Yeah. I don't know if the right posture for us is to push back immediately. Maybe there's some things that they're saying that are not right. But at the same time, man, so many are, are saying it. Am I Am I wrong? I Correct me. I don't think you are. And if uh, we can dial it back, I think, to a few pieces. One, uh, so I mentioned one problem. Like, where, where can I see, like, predictably worse outcomes for black people in Canada? Like, one would be, you know, child and youth development. You know, a couple others can be job opportunities, can be income supports, can be um, access to healthcare services, can be profiling and and. Um, worse outcomes in interacting with police and justice system. I can come up with a, a handful of fairly, like, empirically backed um, problem areas, let's say. And so we've got problems on one side, okay? Problems on one side. And I think a lot of the challenge in the church is some of the voices that we've heard the loudest in taking these problems seriously have with it a whole other worldview than what we come to the table with. And if they're identifying a problem and not just a problem, but they have some certain recommendations on solutions or mechanisms to deal with those problems. Right. You remember earlier I was talking about thinking about debate arguments, problems, mechanisms, and impacts or problems, solutions, and impacts. Right. Right. If I think of, if I was to split this up, I go, well, these people who are the loudest voices in our society that are talking about this as a problem. I disagree with them on their worldview. I disagree with them on a lot of the solutions that they, they bring about. So probably, they're not even seeing problems the way that we should see them as Christians. 
in reality, there are lots of Bible-believing, spirit-filled, <laughs> uh, Jesus-loving black people, and white people for that matter, who also can affirm that these problems exist. And you don't need to huck your Bible out the window or bow the knee to Karl Marx <laughs> to acknowledge that these problems exist. And also, in the solutions that we implement to deal with those problems, there's a lot of room for discussion there. Yeah. Intelligent people who love God, who take yeah. capitalism seriously or whatever. I don't know if anyone's caught on to this yet, but yes, me as a salesperson, I am a fan of capitalism. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, you know, like there are lots of ways to go about dealing with this. And, and those solutions can and should be seriously considered. But you can't meaningfully seriously consider solutions to a problem that you don't concede exists. Right. Right. And that's the challenge I, I hear you saying that in this fear of, 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 you know, some of the, the political views that are attached to, you know, the parties that are involved in trying to address those issues, we reject the issues and their, their answer saying, well, look, you guys are crazy and the issue's not what you say it is and whatever, but there is, it, you can believe that it's an issue and that some of what the people are saying who are trying to address it are off base. You can say both those things at the same time, but you also, I, my thing is I, I just would like the church to be willing to listen uh, and be able to pick out the bones in the fish here. There's some pieces of the fish that need to be, I don't know, is that the right image? I think it is. And I think yeah. I'll push even a little bit further. What we can do in our, you know, social media activist, you know, uh, low cost justice, 21st century Western society, Christian or not, we love taking the path of least resistance. So an easy thing to do is go, yeah, maybe something should change. I don't know if I agree with the solutions that everyone's proposing, but there's probably something there. And just leave the most like vague, actionless, <laughs> impactless but, position. But Jake, I'm taking this seriously because I said something about it <laughs> to myself, and now I'm no, I, I you know that yeah, that's the way that we do all the time. Yeah, I can acknowledge mentally that that's the case, but I don't want it to change, perhaps the way we live. Hey, can I ask you just because we're running out a little bit of time? Can I ask you? Can you give yeah. me though some practical ways for people to engage, thinking more about? these issues. And ultimately, uh, you know, you're talking to a bunch of Christian people probably who are, who are thinking, well, okay, then give me something practical that I, I can do to try to understand the issues better, or maybe able, you know, to get, get to know, you understand all that, all this sort of stuff. Yeah. It's, it's a great question. Um, the first thing I'll lob, um, is you do not have to reinvent the wheel when it comes to taking a very practical next step in your situation. I would try and consider what your situation is, right? So for me, I'm in the private sector. I'm in the tech scene. I am a salesperson. It did not take me very long to like Google search, like what are things that companies who are hiring, we know that one of the areas that uh, we can see clear outcome disparity. And by the way, I'm not necessarily saying that everyone should have equal outcomes in every situation all the time. I know you're think, a capitalist. I do think that one, people should have equal access to opportunity, but two, right. if I can predict based off of some demographic feature about you, that you're going to have significantly worse outcomes <laughs> than someone who doesn't have that demographic feature, Right, there's some issue behind that. There's so probably a problem, right? Like, why should I be able to predict it with that level of effectiveness? It's not that every black person should have every same outcome as every white person. It's that if I can just point to a black person and go, odds are, I'm like, put it all on, put it all on red here. Like, you, you probably, as a college graduate, make 80% of the income or of the dollar that a, a white college graduate makes. I'm just going to bet that money and be right. Like, that's, that's where we're... Um, I think there can be an issue, but anyway, sorry, back to the, back. but your no, but your, your work is addressing that, that challenge some of the stuff you're doing right now with some of the, yeah. Yeah. So this is actually some, one of the things I was going to jump to, right? Like that, that you can, you can look up what are practical things that I can do in my situation. There are so many different sorts of situations for me to then like get into a bunch of them, but like, have you gone out and searched these things <laughs> that you can be doing at your work, at your place of work in your church? Like, 
are you searching for these terms on Google? Because you can find 10 wonderful articles on the first page of Google of practical actions in your exact spot right now, I promise. And if you can't, shoot Jeff an email. Uh, but uh, the specific thing that I thought of when I was starting to, like, I was, I was Google searching, I'm like, oh, there isn't really an, a solution to this particular challenge I was seeing, which was... I was a black person in the tech game and in sales and realized I would love to know black people that have done great work in this industry who could mentor me on how to do like not a handout, but like really put in the work to get to where they've gone to. Isn't it? I mean, it, and that's the cases in, in the year we're getting in IT and some of the, I mean, the Afri, you know, black people are so underrepresented in that field. Is that yeah? That's it's basically the case. True. Like, and so, disproportionately, but, so, like f- not just fewer by population. Like if you check really anywhere, black people in tech versus like the amount of the population they make up in an area outside of like the continent of Africa, it's dismally low. Um, right. Is and that seems to be kind of a cultural thing, though. They think, well, I can't. I'm, you know, I'm not going to do that. I can't do that. Or you know, like it's sort of a. It's not the fact. They don't. I don't know. You understand what and I mean? Yeah, like, definitely. A and cultural that's reaffirmation. This, right. My brother and I are both in tech sales. We growing up didn't think about tech at all because if you were to ask us about tech, I go, man, I'm not like I can't code, <laughs> and I don't think I would be great at coding or that I would enjoy coding. So tech isn't for me. But where this organization sales for the culture came out of to help deal with some of these issues to help get black people into the game started out like very simply like i'm just talking about what's a practical thing that someone could do i started to search for something to for a resource for me to get mentorship from black tech sales professionals i couldn't find that resource and so i took a step to try and make that resource i put together a list of a hundred names of black tech sellers. I went on LinkedIn and I looked at different companies and I searched through their people and I found the black ones and I put them on a list. And it started out as a list of hundreds, now grown to a, a list of yeah, somewhere around like 2,000 uh, names. Um, and that around it, a community started to form of people that went, look, we're the ones who have made it and we would really love to kick some game, to kick some wisdom, to mentor those who are coming on behind us and open up opportunities for, for black people in this industry. Not just who are early on, but those who don't even know this industry exists where you can, I mean, geez, you can put in work, help solve problems for companies, and make six figures without a college degree. I mean, like it's a remarkable profession. <laughs> um, and so um, to be able to open those sorts of doors, that's what sales for the culture is all, all about. It's a community of black tech sellers uh, for black people and black tech sellers so that we don't have to do this thing alone anymore. Okay, Jacob, I just want to summarize because what you've just said is so fundamental to the mission of, of God. I really do believe that what you, what you said is, look, here's the kingdom of God. Here's what it looks like. It's... Uh, diverse and you know at the end in in revelation uh we're gonna all be wearing white coats and everyone's gonna have equal access to god and i mean we all do and you've taken that and said that's the value of the kingdom uh we live in a world where that's not happening so you've taken your spot is i'm in this particular field and now you've tried to bring what i'd say the reign of christ to bear you tried to bring the kingdom principles back into your work and you're trying to figure out a way to make that happen. And this is, I actually think the call of Christ to most of us in our workplaces is to figure out how is lawyering not reflecting the kingdom of God? How, how is mechanicking not reflecting the kingdom of God? In some cases it's going to be racial and in other cases it's going to be like, don't lie to everyone. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like, and so we, we are as Christians, the ones who are supposed to bring some kind of redemption to the places that we currently are in that our mission is certainly to preach the gospel to people, but also to live in light of the gospel and live in light of the kingdom that it ultimately creates. Right? Yeah. yeah. You should be a pastor, man. I, That's good. I know. That was helpful. But this is what we're trying to do with these kind of conversations. Jake, you are a star. I think you're wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me on this discussion. Um, you've had fun. Of course you have. I've had a blast. Can I? Yeah, who? I, I, know yeah, I know we're short on time, but can I ask a quick question? Yes. You, oh, you're supposed to ask me a question. Go. <laughs> uh, it's what I've been thinking about for a while. Um, why do you care about this so much? Like, I know you're, you know, we're, we're Christians. We're supposed to care about, you know, every tribe, tongue, and nation, all that sort of stuff. But, like, why is this planted a seed that's starting to really bother you? <laughs> Uh, it's, this is, 
an awful thing for I know I know what this is the thing that many black people don't like white people saying. Well, I've heard a lot of black friends, uh, um, but I have, and I have seen it happen in their lives. I've heard them talk about their experience in uh, growing up and also in their workplaces and things like that. And I believe I believe them when it comes to some of this. And I really do believe in the vision that the kingdom has. I mean, you're going to be really hard pressed to find that the one of the first outgrowths of the gospel is that it breaks down uh, social, economic, uh, racial barriers. And so for me, I'm like, well, that's that's what the kingdom looks like, and we're kingdom people. So why did, why in the church is this an why why aren't we more kingdom people? Mm-hmm. And certainly, then part of our responsibility as Christian people is to figure out how we as Christians can see the kingdom come to fruition here and now. Will it totally be now? But you know what? There are little flashes of it in places and churches, and when it happens, bam! It is. It is a beautiful thing. I mean, a black black man discipled me and mentored me. I would not be here doing what I'm doing if he did not invest his life in me. And God bless him for it. So I am I'm invested in it because I think it's deeply biblical and very personal to me. And I'll be the first one to say that I don't I don't think that I have listened as well as I should have in the past. Hmm. So I'm trying I want to listen more. I want to I want to listen more. Because I don't know if I have a whole lot to offer other than the, the biblical kingdom-minded, you know, ex- exposition. But I also want to live my life in such a way that tries to bring the reign of Christ to bear in the situations I'm in. And I, God bless you for doing it, man. And God bless you for uh, listening. I talked a lot, so. No, I love it. I love it. Hey, it's been great. It's been great having Jake. And it's been great having you guys join us. Uh, see you next time. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Jeff. Make sure you subscribe to catch up on all upcoming episodes. So until next time, love God, do what you want, and don't be stupid.